Good morning, everyone. We've now come to the time together where we open God's Word, so please keep your Bibles open there. And if on the way in you didn't grab a sermon handout, feel free to duck up the back now and to pick one up. Equally, after the sermon this morning, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So if you haven't picked up those elements, feel free to to duck up the back now. One of the joys of of living on the outskirts of Sydney, out in the southwest, but working in the CBD, was the daily commute into town. I used to catch the train from Glenfield, which was about an hour away from the city. And especially during wintertime, where it was freezing cold outside, but nice and warm and cosy inside the train, it was really, really easy to fall asleep. Gee, it was easy. It was the end of a long day. You'd sit down in the seat, and then bang, two minutes later, you were gonski. But it was amazing. I used to commute up and back from the city for years and years. And it was amazing. You, you developed the ability, maybe you've developed this too, to jump in and just to fall asleep straight away. But you'd wake up immediately before your station. Has anyone else got that, got that special ability? It's a real gift. We don't have trains. Bomaderi has trains. It's quite a gift, isn't it? To fall asleep and then immediately to wake up at just the right time. Why am I telling you this, other than to alert you to the fact that there are trains in Sydney? It's the fact is that it's easy to drift off, to fall asleep when you're exhausted and you're on a long journey, isn't it? To drift off, to lose all sense of where you are or what you're meant to be doing, focused on the destination rather than the journey. Acknowledging that, Peter here in our passage today urges us as believers to not drift off, to remain alert and awake as we take the sometimes exhausting journey as a follower of Jesus. But before we get stuck into our our passage this morning, there's just one thing I want to alert you to. I'm not going to make a big deal of it as we work our way through the passage, but I want you to be on the lookout for it. You might recall that two weeks ago, when we looked at the first two verses of 1 Peter, we saw Peter draw some parallels between the old covenant people of God, the nation of Israel, and the believers to which he wrote this letter. You might recall that he used common language. He spoke of them as being exiles, the elect people of God. He spoke of them as being scattered, all words we saw that were used of the old covenant people of God. And today we're going to see that again in our passage. And I want you to to keep an eye out for that because seeing these parallels really help us to appreciate the depth of this passage. It it, it makes it come to to living colour, if you like, before our eyes. So please be looking for those illusions and parallels as we go. You might have noticed, though, as Beck read for us, our passage today starts in verse 13 with a therefore. 
therefore, drawing our minds back to what we've studied together over the last few weeks. I trust that you, like I, have been humbled as we've considered the the glorious salvation that our triune God has achieved on our behalf. Last week, I, I pray that you were encouraged as with Colin we looked at the living and sure hope that we have grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. And having considered and rejoiced in these great truths in our passage today, Peter begins to unpack for us the implications of our living hope. We're actually going to look at these implications over the next two weeks. Next week, we're going to take a look at the way our living hope plays out in our collective life together. But first of all, this week, we're going to focus in on ourselves and our progress as believers. And we're going to see that in our passage today, Peter calls us to look in three different directions. To look in three directions. The first one's there in verse 13. Look forward. Look forward. When times are tough and we begin to struggle, it's human nature for us to look for hope in someone or something, isn't it? To look to education as the way out of poverty. As we've seen this week, vaccinations as the way out of lockdowns. Perhaps a spouse as the cure to loneliness. And here, Peter urges his readers, who, remember, were beginning to experience a a little bit of suffering. And so perhaps were beginning to question where to put their hope. He urges them to look forwards to the return of Jesus. Verse 13, let me read that again. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Fix your hope, he says, on that great and glorious day when Jesus will return. That day when God's extravagant grace is showered upon his people. And as we enter into the presence of God for all of eternity. That day when faith shall be sight. When God's people receive a most blessed reward based entirely on the work of Jesus. Look forward, he says. To that day. When you've got an important deadline, you reorder your priorities, don't you? Some things that perhaps might have previously seemed important just go that little bit further down the priority list. Filing those bills in the office just isn't that important when the board repeating when you've got a board report to do and the meeting starts in ten minutes. You have to prioritize. Or perhaps thinking about a summer holiday. Remember those times where we could actually have a holiday? In order to look your best on the beach, or at the very least to not be confused for a beach whale, you, you diet for a few months beforehand, don't you? So you could look trim and taunt and terrific. The future always affects 
our presence. That's what Peter's getting at here. He urges us to to look forward to the second coming of Jesus, to set our eyes on the grace to be revealed when Jesus returns. Friends, ignore Joel Osteen. This isn't your best life now. In fact, ignore Joel Osteen for a whole manner of reasons. But friends, your best life as a believer is never going to be this side of glory. Fix your hope, Peter says, on the grace to come. That day that will usher in your best life for all of eternity. If that's what we're to do, how are we to do that? How are we to set our hope fully on the grace to come? Peter shows us there right at the start of verse 13. With minds that are alert and fully sober. I think the New King James Version puts it a little bit better. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Gird up the loins of your mind. But it's not really one that's familiar to us these days. So let me explain what that means. When someone in the Near East girded their loins, they were ready for action. They were ready to get going. They would tuck their long flowing robes into their belt so that they were ready for strenuous activity or to run or to fight. It was a sign of getting down to serious business. The equivalent today might be perhaps rolling up your sleeves before starting work. This was the very instruction, in fact, that God gave Israel before they celebrated the Passover in Egypt. They were to eat that final Passover meal with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand ready for action, ready to go, ready to work. What Peter's saying here is that there's no way to persevere through trials, no way to fix your hope fully on Jesus whilst you're half asleep. You can't sleepwalk your way to heaven. We need to be ready for action, sober, Alert, engaged, aware that as disciples we're in a hostile environment. This world is not our home, ready for battle. As Peter will say later on in chapter 5, and notice he uses exactly the same language. Be alert and of sober mind, he says. This is chapter 5, verse 8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Friends, you can't sleepwalk as a follower of Jesus. So let me ask you today, my brother, my sister, is there an urgency about your Christian life? Are you alert, ready to to spring into action? Or are you sleepwalking 
coasting, idling, or even worse, not engaged, not not aware that you're engaged in a battle at all. Friends, I suspect that for most of us, we need to wake up. Peter isn't calling us here to be anxious or fearful, but to feel the urgency of the gospel. Friends, it wouldn't just be nice for your not yet believing friends to hear the gospel. No, they need to hear the gospel or they are destined for eternity in hell. You don't need to just keep sin manageable in your life so it doesn't cause too much damage. No, you need to seriously, intentionally root it out of your life or else it will destroy you and your witness. Friends, and I think we need to hear this in the West today, being frivolous or carefree is not a mark of spiritual maturity. Let me say that again. Being frivolous or carefree, lackadaisical, is not a mark of Christian maturity. As we look forward to the great and glorious day of Jesus' return, we need to engage our brains. We need to be alive and alert. We need to look forward. But also, Peter tells us, We need to look back. Verse 14. Perhaps unexpectedly, we're not often called to look back in the Christian life, are we? The Apostle Paul, in fact, says he forgets what is behind. But here Peter tells us to look back to our former way of life. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. As redeemed and adopted children of God, we're to look back and to recognize the ignorance and the futility that characterized our former way of life. To look back and see just how broken we were. To recognize our moral bankruptcy that we were living lives that were dishonouring to God. Name that way of life for what it was, Peter says, so that when those passions flare up again, and they will, you won't be tempted to conform. To see that those old patterns, those passions, aren't familiar friends offering relief, but enemies of our soul bent on destruction. Last month, as I was reading the book of Numbers in my quiet time, I was struck again and again by just how Israel failed to do that. They kept grumbling and murmuring against God and Moses. They were always looking back with rose-tinted glasses to what things were like in Egypt. They speak about longing for a return to the fish and the meat and the produce that they used to enjoy back in Egypt. Always looking back with jaundiced memories to what things were like in Egypt. Because they weren't good at all, were they? They were oppressed slaves crying out to God for deliverance. They were suffering. They weren't 
sitting around pots of meat singing camp, campfire songs. They were crying out to God for deliverance. But two things, the passing of time and their present suffering had caused them to look back and glamorize their former lives. And just like Israel, I think we too can be tempted to do the same. To longingly look back to our previous lifestyle. To look back, perhaps with rose-tinted glasses, to what life was like before we came to Christ. To forget the hopelessness that we felt. The never-satisfied cravings of sin. Satan tries to whisper the opposite in our ear, of course. Do that again. Go back. It, it won't make a difference. It'll make, it'll make you feel better. That, of course, is a cruel, deceptive lie. Perhaps you're here this morning, though, and when you look back, you don't see that emptiness of life. Perhaps you were blessed to grow up in a Christian home. Perhaps you've always been along that journey of being a follower of Jesus. And so you don't look back to your former way of life and see the emptiness. You're, you're tempted in a different direction. You're tempted to look at those who don't yet know Christ and to think that that is where hope and life and freedom is found. To think that pursuing sin without abandon is much more exciting or engaging than attending a Bible study. Whatever camp we might find ourselves in, Peter urges us here with a very helpful before and after, I think. Do you see what he says? Your lives in the past were fruitless. You were alienated from God. They were futile. That was your past condition. Now you are children of God. You've been set apart for him. You're looking forward to glory. Why would you ever want to go back to that? Why would you ever want to pursue that? By naming that life for what it was, Peter wants to awake in us a hunger for holiness, not the fruitless passions of our former ignorance. But how do we do that? How do we generate that longing for, that motivation for obedience and ever-increasing holiness? That's what Peter goes on to explain next. The antidote isn't to look back, but to look up. To look up. This is what we read in verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Holiness means being set apart or separated for God's purposes. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of a greater motivation for my personal holiness than God's perfect holiness. When we truly see the complete, all-encompassing, all-consuming holiness of God, we can't help but be stirred to more beautifully reflect him, to mirror his love, his forgiveness, his justice, his faithfulness. 
Friends, no one who truly understands, no one who truly delights in the holiness of God can ever be content in ungodliness in themselves. We want, we long to display more of a family likeness to our father. Now, it's a bit like couples who spend decades together. They finish each other's sentences. They have the same mannerisms. They begin to resemble each other, don't they? And it's the same with our heavenly father. The more intimately we know him, the more we spend time with him, the more we'll reflect him. Now, if being like God isn't motivation enough, and let me say it should be, there's more in verse 17. That was the carrot. Now we come to the kind of stick. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Our heavenly father who has adopted us, the holy God, is still our judge. Do you see that in verse 17? God is our father. We are his adopted children. He delights in us. We call out to him, addressing him, Abba, Father. But he's equally a judge. And he will judge each of us impartially according to our deeds. It's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? It's one that I suspect as believers we, we don't think about that much. That one day we will all stand before God and be judged according to our works. I know what you're thinking. Or I hope you're thinking this. Hang on a second. Just 15 minutes ago, we were looking at verse 13 and we were glorying in God's abundant shower of grace on us. But now you're saying we're judged according to works. How do, how do those two things go together? Well, it's a good question. And by God's grace, thankfully, Peter answers it for us. Let's keep reading from verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. You see, Peter's not confused. He's clear that our sin is paid for by the precious blood of Jesus. The, the perfect Passover lamb. There's another allusion back to the Old Testament. Sacrificed to deliver us. Our debt is paid in full. God's wrath is completely satisfied. Our guilt is removed. Christ's righteousness imputed to us. There's no doubt about that. There's no need for us to fear double jeopardy when Jesus returns. There's no need for us to fear our sin being counted against us. Because this isn't judgment to heaven or hell 
that Peter's talking about here. We won't be judged according to our sins, but we will be judged according to our works. Our sins won't be judged, but our works will be. Peter brings together here two concepts that I think we often separate. God is both Father and Judge. And so even though we are in the family of God, our sins have been forgiven. We will still give account before the Bema, the the judgment seat of Christ, for every thought, every action, every desire, every motive. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. I'm convinced after my study over the last week that this is a doctrine that we as Christians have neglected over the years. That one day we will stand before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, and be rewarded or suffer loss for our deeds done in the body. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the bags of gold, where we're we're held to account for what has been entrusted to us. Friends, there is an awesome gravity to this. God judges impartially. He isn't fooled by appearances, even though sometimes others are. He doesn't play favourites. Nothing is hidden from him. That's why Peter urges us here to live out your time as foreigners in reverent fear. Reverent fear. He's not saying that we should find God terrifying or doubt our salvation. It's not fear of judgment. There's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the reverent awe, the trembling that should fill our hearts at the very thought of transgressing his word or dishonouring him. My brothers and sisters, we need to live in deep, reverential awe of the Father, recognising that as gracious and as loving and as kind as he is, he is also our judge. It's one of the ways Israel got into trouble in the Old Testament, isn't it? They lost sight of God's character and his holiness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. My brother, my sister, do you have a reverent fear of our holy God, knowing that one day you will be judged for your works? As Keith read at the start of our service in Psalm 62, God will reward everyone according to what they have done. Don't mishear me. Not afraid of ultimate judgment. We know that every sin has been paid for upon Christ on the cross. But recognizing 
that one day we will give an account to God for the way that we've spent our time, for the way that we've spent our money, for the way that we've spent our energy, for what we've pursued, for what we've been passionate about, for what we've spoken about, for how we've spent our retirement. Do we live with that reverent fear? Or have we, perhaps practically, given in to the lie of cheap grace? I'm forgiven and nothing else matters. Friends, there's no time for us to snooze as elect exiles who are scattered. No time for us to drift off like on a warm city rail train on the way to our destination. We need to be intentional. We need to guard against complacency and drift. We need to look forward to Christ's return, especially when times are hard and we're tempted to find our hope elsewhere. Looking forward with eyes set on the glorious return of Jesus, when we will be showered with grace. To look back, to recognize the futility of our former lives such that we are never ever tempted to return. And every day to look up to our Father, but equally our Judge, who calls us to ever increasingly reflect Him. Let me now pray that God might empower us to do just that. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for these reorientating words from 1 Peter 1, where you call us to very intentionally look in three different directions. Lord, we confess that perhaps like the original recipients of Peter's letter, that when times are tough, when we're on a long journey and we're tired, we can be tempted to drift off, to fall asleep, to lose our way. And we thank you that knowing that, you have given us such a passage that reorientates us in your ways. Lord, we pray that you might help us to look. To look forward with eyes that are set on the grace and the glory to be revealed when Jesus comes again. To not allow suffering or hardship in this life to dim our vision of that great and glorious day. When we will receive what we do not deserve because of Christ's perfect work on our behalf. Lord, we confess that far too easily we are tempted to view that our former lives or the life of those who don't yet know Christ with, with envy rather than recognizing them for what they are outside of your purposes and ultimately vain and futile. Lord, help us, just like Peter does here, to name that life for what it is that our hearts might not be inclined towards it, that we might not conform to this former pattern, but that we might instead seek to be holy as you are holy. Lord, help us to see you for who you truly are, our great and our glorious and our holy Father. Help us to evermore see and reflect your righteousness, your love, your justice in this world. Help us, Lord, to be motivated. There's nothing wrong with it. To be motivated 
by the possibility of eternal reward in your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be good stewards of all that you have entrusted to us. We pray that you might help us to look forwards, to look backwards, and to look up to you, our holy God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.